So today I want to uh, want to talk about um, a word that we have used in our culture for a long time, but with the advent of social media, it's it probably is kind of takes on a new life. That word is repurposing. Okay, uh, maybe what comes to mind? What comes to my, to my mind is things that are old and don't or not don't have a serve a purpose anymore are repurposed into a, a, a new thing. So I think I first kind of realized this when I went to college. I came back, and my dad was the first repurposer in my life. And I went in the backyard and saw a, a KitchenAid mixer, you know, the, the nice, cool KitchenAid mixers. In the backyard is a flower pot. I'm like, what's up with the, with the trash in the backyard? It's like, it's a statement piece, you know. Uh, I'm repurposing this, you know. Um, but with social media, maybe you've, you've seen it like I have, you're, you're sitting on there just kind of scrolling through and you just see these things and they're intriguing to me at first, right? Um, sometimes you see different things. I saw one, somebody said, take you know, your Coke, two liter Coke bottle, that can be used as a broom. Really? You know, and it shows like they put a broomstick, you know, in the top and then you flatten it, you cut off the bottom and you take scissors and cut, you know, up till it has like, it's like a broom and then you can use it. I'm like, that has to be the worst idea I've ever heard of, right? Another one I just saw was like, you know, your old T-shirts, which you don't use, you're going to throw them away, they go to landfill. Take those up, cut them in little corners, and you can use those to wipe your baby's bottoms. I'm like, really? Who does that? Come on. Or the other one, the mismatched socks. We all have those, you know, that little pile of just odd socks, and, you know, you can put those on your hand and wipe your blinds or your, over your ceiling fans and all that. I'm like... You know, good, probably a good idea. Maybe I'll do that, but probably I won't. When it comes down to it, I like things according to their purpose. A flower pot. Give me a regular broom, right? Give me a baby wipes and a, and a Swiffer, right? Those, that's why they're used. That's why we have them, and that's what they should be used for. I bring that up because today, Jesus is really the real repurposer. And we're going to read this story, and he's going to repurpose something in here. We just read the scripture. Dennis read it, and it probably went right by you. But we're going to stop a little bit and look at that and just see what he takes and what he repurposes. Because what he does at this wedding here in John chapter 2, we still think about today. In fact, we're going to celebrate it today when we take communion in just a little bit. But Jesus is the first one to do that. Today we're beginning a new series. We just ended our summer of Psalms, even though it feels more like summer now than it did back in June. But uh, we're moving on from that. I love that. I hope you did too. But now we're moving on to what we're called encountering Jesus. We're going to be looking at the gospel of John. And we're not going to look at all of the gospel. We're not going to look at all of the teachings. But we're going to look at these interactions that Jesus has with different people. So next week we'll have Nicodemus and the woman at the well and uh, the woman caught in adultery and, and all of those. We'll, we'll get into those stories. But it's, it's all about the reason why Jesus came. Uh, earlier this year, I started reading the Gospels this way, just kind of reading through them quickly, not looking, hanging on every word, but really looking at uh, the interactions that Jesus had with people, like when he got near them, when he touched them, things like that. And it's really interesting to me, just a reminder that Jesus came for us. He came into our world to interact with us, to have this relationship. Right? He didn't uh, come to stand behind like a bulletproof glass or, you know, the, the plexiglass so no germs can come through like you see at stores even still. He didn't do that. He didn't come with like these secret servicemen that we call disciples that are kind of watching behind his back making sure nobody gets near him. He came and he touched 
people. He talked to them. He looked at them face to face. And what Jesus did then, he is still doing today. Jesus came to interact. He came to our dinner parties to eat with us and laugh with us. Right? He, he came to our funerals to cry with us. He sang songs on these road trips going from the north to the south. And he came to celebrate at our weddings. So today as we look at first John, or, uh, John chapter 2, it's uh, Jesus' first miracle. And I think a lot of us, when we read this, it's like, well, that's a cute miracle. That's nice. That's the reason I feel I can have a beer or I can have wine because Jesus made wine. Right? That's on the one side. On the other side, you say, no, no, no. See, this was really like grape juice. They watered it down. But I don't know. Not many people can get drunk on grape juice. So uh, perhaps it's, uh, it's somewhere in the middle or whatever. But when we hear the story, for a lot of us, it's like, well, that's a nice story. But I just want to tell you, like, without getting too seminary deep and kind of geeking out for our seminary and Bible students, like, there's so much richness in this story. It tells the, the reason why Jesus came. And it fulfills, like, all these Old Testament thoughts on the Messiah, on why he came and what he'll do. All of it comes together in this first miracle. So today we're going to look at that, and we're going to just see that God, God is the one who, who's bringing joy into our life. And he does it here with this little stop in a town called Cana. Many times when people think, like, Jesus' first, you know, his first miracle, like, he's got to come big, right? He's got to come and big, do something really big, but this isn't really big. I mean, really big would be like, like uh, what God did for, in the Exodus. He gave food, you know, to all of Israel. Like, Jesus could have done that. He says, you know, today there'll be bread and everybody has it. He didn't do that. Right? He could have been like, like uh, do something like tie up all the Roman guards, kind of like a Samson kind of thing, you know, uh, render them powerless and get rid of them. He could have done that. That would have been big. He could have, uh, what else? Um, he could have gone to Pilate and Herod and just say, hey, I'm throwing down some plagues like Moses did here. We're going to rid you of this place. He could have done those things. He could have been like Elijah and flown over Jerusalem in a chariot of fire. Like any of those would have been big. Would have been really cool. But instead, he's in this little town just north of, of Nazareth, up in Galilee. It's a little like a farming town. Probably not very many people live there. And he's there, and he does this beautiful, amazing ministry where he's telling people who he is. Now, some of you might think, well, okay, he didn't go big, so he's just going small. Like, let's just test this out. Kind of like Spider-Man when he's kind of trying to figure out his webs. Like, before he goes big, he's just going to try to figure it out. Maybe this is like Jesus saying, you know, let me just see if these things work, you know. I don't know. Oh, there's water. I'll see if I can turn in the wine. Yeah, it works. Now we're ready to hit the road. It, that's not what he does either. This packed with significance. So as we, as we look at this, I want us to see it as maybe the disciples did. Uh, this passage ends in verse 11, and it says this. He says uh, in John 2, 11, he says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, this is the first sign. He's going to, through John, there's several signs of, of calming the waves, of healing the blind man, of, of doing all these miracles, feeding the 5,000. All of those are signs, and this is the first one. 
and the disciples, these, right now it's only five guys, um, five guys uh, are looking at him and saying, we saw something glorious and we believe. So if they can believe, what about us? What can we believe? That Jesus has come to give you joy. All right, that's his reason for coming, and we're going to see that through this story. So today, instead of like an outline, we're just going to kind of hit just a few things uh, as they stand out in the story. So first, we're going to talk about his mother. Okay, that's the first kind of part of this story in those first four verses. And so Jesus being the oldest son of Mary, now he is changing things. With this miracle, he changes from being a son to a savior. Here's what it says. Verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? All right. When you hear that, how does that kind of register to you? When you hear Jesus talk to his mom, say, Woman, why, why are you telling me this? What's it matter to me? It, it might sound a little bit, you know, jarring, but it's a relationship change, and that happens through life, right? The big ones, like when your kids go to college, right, you, things change. If they get married, things change. You kind of redefine the relationship a little bit. But here, this happens too, and, and it changes things. If it seems a little bit jarring, kind of like woman, you might say, well, that's probably just the way they talked back then. I mean, that's just, that was just normal. And some people do that. Some people kind of put like dear woman, kind of soften it or whatever. But it is jarring. It was jarring back then and it is right now. It, this was not a rude name. It's just not a name that a son would say to his mother. So if, uh, if you, you're a mom and you have little kids and you tell your kids, Hey, hey, kids, put away your plates, you know, go brush your teeth, get ready for bed. And your child says, woman, why are you telling me this? You know, that's not a track for, uh, for ice cream that night, right? That's uh, maybe a track for soap in the mouth or fill in the blank, whatever you do in your house. But that will not go over well. But here Jesus says it, well, obviously much older. He says, woman, why are you telling me this? It would be, there's not a lot of... Um, good translations, like what that means, but some might say it's, it's equivalent of saying like ma'am. So unless you're from the South and you kind of, that's part of your vocabulary. Here, if I were to say that to an older woman at the grocery store, you know, excuse me, ma'am, uh, it wouldn't be thought of as rude. I mean, sometimes when people hear that, don't call me ma'am, I'm not a ma'am, and all that. But it's, it's not a rude term, but it's, you, it's not something the son says to your mother, except for when the relationship changes. And here he's saying, okay, this, this is going to change now. If you want me to do this, if we're going to go down this path, then our relationship's going to change. Instead of a, a son to a mother, it's going to be a savior to another lady, another woman, another person. So he changes this. And later on, we'll see that like in, in uh, Matthew chapter 12, and there's some other places in the gospel. Remember when Jesus is teaching, and he's just going for it, and the disciples say, hey, hey, Jesus, your mom, your brother, their sister are outside. They're waiting for you. Remember what he says? It's like, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? He says, the ones who hear, the ones who respond, you're my family. He wasn't being disrespectful or rude. He was just living according to this. He has changed it. To enter into his family is not done by blood anymore. It's done through faith. 
You want to be a brother or a sister of Jesus, you do it through faith, not your family. You can have the most wonderful, godly, delightful, blessed family, but you don't enter Jesus through that family. You enter through faith. On the other side, you could have the most disrespectful, the most ungodly family, but even that won't keep you from faith. You can still come to Jesus through faith in him, no matter where your family is. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, I'm, I'm opening this up now. And that's why we say this in the church, why we call each other brothers and sisters. Years ago, when I came here, 15 years ago, uh, you know what we called everybody, like the little kids? They call them aunties. Remember that? It was like Auntie Carla, Auntie Lisa, Auntie Grace. Uh, I loved it. I would love to go back to that. Honestly, that'd be beautiful. Because it captures just some of that family that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. But that's the first thing. And we think that's significant. Like, oh, yeah, that's great. But it really matters because he's changing the way that people come to Jesus, not just through family, but through faith. All right, so we move on. It's now, we talk about the hour. We talk about his mother, and now it's the hour. And Jesus is not saying, it's getting late, it's late in the day. That's not the hour that he's referring to. He's talking about his time, his ministry time. So in verse 4, he says, woman, why do you involve me? He says, my hour has not yet come. When I heard that, it's just always through life growing up. I always thought it was like, I'm not ready to start yet. The race hasn't started and Mary's saying, hey, you know, get, let's, let's move along, let's get going. He's not, well, we're not ready yet. Kind of like it's a, like he's a track, you know, running track, but there's no timer out, there's no starting gun, none of that. That's not what he's saying. It's the opposite, actually. He's saying that I'm not ready to die yet. Because I know once I start this, once I start revealing my glory, now it starts me on a path that's going to end at the cross. And throughout John's gospel, this is how he uses it, right? He says, always, the hour has not yet come, right? They tried to seize him, but the hour had not yet come. But in John 12, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then he says, my soul is troubled, right? Lord, can you save me from this hour? No, this is the very reason I've come, for this hour. So this hour refers to his death. He's saying, if I start this, now I'm going to the cross. And you could sense this troubling spirit, like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready for this, but this is going to cost me my life. This will change all these relationships. So does he do it? You know, you're kind of like, you know, if you don't know the story, you're like, is he going to do it, or is he going to, like, pull back and wait a few more years? Well, Mary answers that question for him. She says, let's get on, let's do this, right? And so as we move the story, now we're going to look at the jars, the jars, the significance of the jars, and this is where it gets awesome. And then we'll do the jars, and then we'll get to the wine. It's beautiful, right? He sees these jars, and these are the things he repurposes. These jars is what he's going to repurpose, all right? Here's what it says in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Like, kind of like the way it's really worded is like, whatever he says, do it. Just do it. So nearby, look at this verse, six, it's amazing. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind that are used for the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Mary's unfazed that the hour has not come. She says, still, let's do it. 
then it's almost like Jesus says, nearby there's these stones. Kind of like he looked, like he's looking around going like, well, what will hold wine? Oh, there we go. There's, some, there's something will hold it. Kind of like, you know, you're in your garage and you're looking, well, what will hold this? Well, there's those orange Home Depot buckets, you know, they're in the corner. Let's we'll use those. That's not what's going on. Instead, he's kind of like, I got it. Come with me. Probably where they were standing was not where the ceremonial jars are. Those would have been like by the front door. So he takes them to the front. These are heavy stone. They're, these are not things that you move around easy. These have been set in a certain place for a reason. They're purification or to, to help somebody for this, the ceremonies to get clean. For him to fill these with wine is a major like break in etiquette. This is not normal. This is like, you don't do this. Because these are special. These are like religious items. Kind of like uh, taking a communion glass maybe and using that for whiskey or something. Like, you're probably not going to do that. That's kind of like feels wrong or whatever. But this is what he does. He takes them. And he says, fill these things with water. All right, what are these things? These purification jars. As you remember in the Old Testament, there's so much of like this being clean or being unclean and all that, and there's different ways that you get clean. But at this point, when you came for worship and meals were times of worship, you would wash, you would get ceremonially clean. So you'd take this water and wash your hands and, and all of that, and it was part of you getting ready for worship. Okay, so... Uh, that was a normal thing. Other, there was also utensils maybe that were used for serving. If those got unclean, they touched the wrong kinds of food, they would come over here, they would clean those and make them ceremonially clean. So when Jesus says this, like, take these. It's like 150 gallons total, right? About that. You fill them full of water. That's, that's a lot of water. But you know what that is? That's a ton of wine. A ton of wine. That's 750 wine bottles. 3,000 glasses of wine that are in there. Jesus, you, you think you maybe overdid it? He says, absolutely, and that's all part of this. I'm overdoing it, okay? I'm going to blow your mind, you guys. So you think this is like religious faux pas, right, that, that, um, that I'm doing this, but this is intentional. Now imagine, imagine you come late to the wedding. You got held up, you know, whatever. The wedding's been going on for a couple days maybe, you get there and you're like, ah, I'm here. I gotta, I gotta wash and get ready. I gotta get ceremonially clean, right? So you go to these jars and you take the little ladle and you pour it on your hands. And instead of clear water, you have red wine on your hands. You're like, what in the world? Like you, it would, like you would not be able to comprehend why is there red wine in here? And then someone comes by and he's like, you gotta try this wine. This is the best wine, you know? It'd be like, you're like, this is bizarro land. Like, what is happening? But linked now, purification, wine. And then what does Jesus do later on, just before he dies? What does he repurpose wine for? He says, this wine represents my blood that is being poured out for you to cleanse you. Now, I don't think John picked that up right now. I don't think the disciples had picked that up at this point. To, me, to him, it was just it was a great miracle. He changed water into wine. But later on, 
when he's writing this gospel, he's like, that's it. Purification. He says it's going to happen through wine. That wine is the blood. How are we purified? We're purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And not just with water externally, but it's something you drink. It purifies you internally. Like what Jesus did with those purification, like repurposing that, was amazing. And, and that, that wine had to be in there for a long time. This party wasn't probably that big. Right For days, the people would come back like, okay, we're going to come back now and wash, but no, we can't. It's full of wine. All right. You know, no washing involved. Crazy. And imagine the disciples later on throughout their ministry as they're with Jesus. They would do this every day, wash ceremonially, and then each time going back like, Remember when there was wine in there? I keep expecting to be red, you know. But remember what Jesus did? Like, how to be fresh in their minds throughout their lives. Revelation tells us, and John wrote Revelation, that Jesus Christ loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood, purified through his blood. You know, that's what Jesus came. He came to interact with us. To purify us. That's why Jesus could touch a leper without becoming unclean, or unclean, right? Because his purity was greater than that. He could touch a blind man or a dead person or whatever it was. He could do that because he had the purity. He wasn't becoming unclean. He was bringing other, making other things clean. That's beautiful, right? Let me move on to the wine. I'm like, okay. What's the deal with the wine, right? It, did he save these kids from embarrassment? I mean, I say kids. They're probably teenagers or so. They're getting married. Like, yeah, he saved them from embarrassment, and he saved them a lot of money. I mean, 700 bottles of wine, that's a lot, that's a lot of money, right? He hooked them up. See, but in, but he, in this culture, like, he did save them from shame, you know, because to run out of wine at a wedding, that's like, that's telling the, the, the parents of the bride, like, I really didn't prepare, I didn't plan, you know. That's not what they want to hear. Yeah, that happened, but there was something more significant. Because he's identifying this wine with the Messiah. Here's what I mean. Um, look in verse 8 and 9. He says, you know, he told the servants, now draw some wine, take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, right? So that's, they knew what it was, where it came from and all that, but this guy didn't. But he just, he turned the water into wine. You know, there's like 200 references in the Old Testament to wine. It's big, it's a lot in there. Like joy is only mentioned like 240 times, so um, that's interesting. But like 200 references. Sometimes it's, it's bad, like Moses got drunk, right? Or Lot and his daughters, or Nabal... Um, uh, uh, David and, um, and Bathsheba's wife. Remember, he got him drunk and then, you know, killed him. Um, the fool in Proverbs was always drunk. So there's, there's definitely, like, there's wine can be abused and don't get drunk, right? But most of those references are in reference to joy, the joy of the coming of the Messiah, the coming kingdom throughout 
the scriptures. In Genesis, with Jacob and Abraham, uh, all through there, it talks about when, the, when God's going to pour out his blessing, it's going to come with new grain and new wine. And then the, the prophets pick it up. Like four or five of the prophets, they talk about this. And they say, when God's kingdom comes in all of its fullness. In other words, when the Messiah comes, they add another one. It's going to have new oil, right? new grain, and new wine. And in Psalm 104, it talks about this, uh, this, new, uh, this new day when God's blessing comes. And it's gonna, the oil will make people's faces shiny. I don't know what that means. Uh, the, but the wine will bring, will bring gladness to the heart. And the grain will fill the heart. And he puts all of these things together with the Messiah. And so a good Jewish person back then knows that when the Messiah comes, this reference to wine and grain and oil are all part of it. So when Jesus just turns water into wine, it's not just, oh, that's what people drink. It's a little grape juice or whatever. No, it's fulfilling all of these things. And for the astute person to say, I think the Messiah is coming. And he's coming with abundance. He's coming with abundance. The groom had prepared that he didn't prepare enough. I don't know. Maybe there was like the, the shipping shortage, you know, back then. Can't get any wine. I don't know. That's all I could get. It was all stuck on a, a boat somewhere on the harbor. I don't know what, what the reason was. But it, it shows this like lack of, of, of joy that is there in the world that the world can't provide. But Jesus comes and says, I'm bringing the joy. And I'm going to bring it with abundance. 3,000 glasses enough? You know, is that Okay. For the rest of this party. Throughout the scriptures also, it also talks about this day when the Lord comes. And we, we think about this. Uh, John kind of um, talks about heaven. But Isaiah 25, it talks about this day of the Lord. It will be a great feast. And there will be aged wine and fine wine. And then all kinds of meats and all kinds of vegetables for vegetarians. It's got everything. But that's an anticipation and that's what Jesus refers to when he gives communion and he says, uh, I'm going to drink it with you right now, but I'm not going to have it again until the day that I'm with you at the feast. Then we're going to have it again. When you drink this wine, remember me. Remember what I did. Remember the purification that I gave you. Remember the, the purification that brings you joy. And look forward to that day when we'll have it Again, together. That must have meant something deep to these disciples. I think it's meaningful for us, but to his friends saying, we're not going to have this again until we're all together in heaven. But the coming of the Lord, it's pretty amazing. One last person, the MC. The MC. He's the man in charge, right? Kind of in charge of making sure the food is right there, the entertainment, everything's good. He's making sure everything is good. He might argue that he's one of the first people to preach the gospel. Kind of preaches the gospel. Here's what it says in verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. The best till now. In other words, hey, people, let this party begin. All right? It was good. It just got better. 
We got, we got even better wine. I don't know how he did it. I don't know where it came from. But this is better. You had something good. This is better. Most people brought out good and got cheap. He brought out something good and it got better. It got better when Jesus got involved. Imagine that servant, though. You got, you know, Jesus says, hey, take this cup and give it to the MC. And uh, you're like, you're pouring it out of, it's not like a bathtub. That would be a poor translation. But you get the picture, like tap water, you know. And uh, he takes it and gives it to him. And he's got to be nervous, right? He didn't know, like, what all this, what it's going to taste like. He's expected to be spit in his face, maybe thrown at him. Get out of here. I can't believe you would serve me that. And said the guy's like, this is amazing. And he brings the bride or the, the bridegroom, the groom, the guy over and says, I don't know what you did, but this is amazing. I don't even know if he knew anything about this. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah that's what I, you know, that's what I did. Going like, what happened? What did he do? But they all knew. He was shocked. He amazed. But here's, here's what he preached. He's saying, so this groom brought out the best. Who provides the wine? The groom. Jesus is now stepping in, I believe, saying, hey, you guys think this is their wedding? This is a symbol of my wedding. This is my wedding. I'm providing the the wine. I'm bringing the joy. I'm bringing the celebration. And if you want to be a part of this marriage, you can enter it. But not through a ring and stuff like that. You, you enter through faith. You want to be part of my family? You want to be part of this, this church that, that we call the bride of Christ? We enter through faith. Through Jesus. Through faith in him. And just in, 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 in recognizing that his body died for our sins. His blood was poured out for our sins. On his body took the sins. His blood washed it clean. You can have joy now. You can be part of his family now when you enter by faith. Remember how it ended? It said, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the first thing that he did to reveal his glory. It wasn't just hooking up some kids with some free wine. It was significant in the message that he was showing. And I'm sure, I'm sure the disciples, like I said earlier, didn't capture all of it right then and there. To them, it was like, this is a really cool thing you just did. But throughout their life, every time they washed their hands, every time they were drinking that wine and remembered Jesus' body, when they saw him on the cross, they're going back to these things. To remember that Jesus is the one who brings this joy into the world, better than what the world can provide. That just, that's the cheap wine. But his joy is the best.